It's a uh, pleasure to be with you, and um, we'll be continuing our, our study in the Gospel according to the Apostle John. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to continue in the Gospel of John. It shows that uh, my last time I preached in the Gospel of John, uh, Phil wasn't too disappointed then. So uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be up here and the immense privilege um, to present his word to you. Um, we'll go ahead and we're going to be in John chapter 12. We're going to be ver- looking at verses 12 through 19. John 12, 12 through 19. And we read... The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. In the very beginning of this gospel account in chapter 1, Nathanael, we read of a great claim made by Nathanael in verse 49, when Jesus reveals to Nathanael that he saw him uh, when I believe Philip came to him. And Nathanael says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. A very profound statement made by Nathanael in the very first uh, chapter of John. And as you've heard, the first two songs that we're singing also highlight uh, the kingship of our Lord. Our Lord uh, fulfills three offices. He fills the office of high priest, he fulfills the office of prophet, and he fulfills the office of king. The book of Matthew highlights Jesus' kingship. But so great was this event in which our text is today, which is commonly referred to as a triumphal entry, and has to be probably one of the most preached on texts because uh, we pretty much mention it or speak on it every Palm Sunday, Sunday before Easter. So a very well-known text. Uh, But it highlights the office of king in which Jesus occupies. Such such was its significance that it is one of the few events that is recorded in all four gospel accounts. Now let's do a quick recap up until this point. Jesus had just performed one of his greatest miracles, which was the rising and raising of Lazarus from the dead. And we have to really 
understand, and I'll be mentioning it throughout the text, um, the importance of this event. Lazarus was not some unknown person in the community. He was very well known. Him and his sisters were well known in the community. Uh, the, the death of him would have gone out far and wide. So how much more would the life being restored to him after he was dead have gone out far and wide? Um, Lazarus was not someone that was uh, a nobody that when they, people told him, hey, so-and-so has been raised from the dead. Oh, Bob. They say, who's Bob? Lazarus was a very known member in the community. And it must be noted how significant that the rising of his life, restoration of his life was when Jesus performed this miracle. And it's no coincidence that um, he had, this isn't the first time he raised someone from the dead, but it's no coincidence that he waits up until this moment to perform this great miracle. Uh, and many had heard of this miracle, the work done by our Lord, and were intrigued by its implications. From here we read that it was from that, that the religious leaders had come to the conclusion that they now needed to get rid of Jesus. They now needed to kill Jesus. And as we saw last week, even, even the rising, even Lazarus being alive was a problem for them. Because not only did it confirm Jesus' power, confirm his message, confirm his deity and, and power over life and death, but it also was a problem for the religious leaders, especially the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the rising of the dead. They believed once you're dead, there was, that was it. There was no afterlife. There was no coming back. So just having Lazarus alive was a huge problem for these religious leaders. And they come to the conclusion that they now need to kill Jesus and Lazarus. And we read in verse 53, 1153 of John's Gospel, that Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples, knowing that it was not yet his time. Jesus lays low. This was, of course, during the time of the Passover, which was one of the biggest celebrations of uh, Jerusalem, of the Jews, where millions of pilgrims would, would come to Jerusalem to take part of the festivities. It is estimated that there were millions in the town, millions of people will come to take part of this celebration. So all of Jerusalem is flooded with, with pilgrims from all over, even some who were not even Jews. And this great crowd that Jesus is close to, this great crowd that's in Jerusalem, Jesus is close to, he's in the town of Bethany with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And a great crowd, we read in the text before, goes to see him. The news of Lazarus' resurrection had reached far and wide, and this crowd goes out to see him, and this is where we pick up our text here. In verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, we see in verse 9, when a large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, that's at Bethany, at the house of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, they come on account of him and also to see Lazarus. 
Then in verse 12, we see the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So the question comes, who is this large crowd? Is it the same crowd? And it seems, uh, who cares, right? And as I spent about half an hour trying to figure out what, who, what, who was this crowd? Was it the same crowd? And I was reading commentaries that said, yes, it was. I read comments that said, no, it wasn't. Um, and I've come to the conclusion that this was a different crowd. I could be wrong. It's been known to happen from time to time. But because I believe it's a different crowd because of the extra description John gives. John says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast. So there's an extra description here, which lets us know that John was probably throwing that in to let us know that this was a different large crowd. This is the crowd who had pilgrimed, who had come into Jerusalem to take part of the Passover festivities. Now, there's no doubt, um, another thing, too, is, is that the, Lord, the crowd that goes out to Bethany to meet Jesus at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Jesus' fame, the rising of Lazarus, had, like I said, gone far and wide, and it was a big deal. And now this crowd goes to Bethany, which is about two miles away from Jerusalem, where our setting is in this text. But when they get there, they most likely, most likely are going to stay there. And we see that in the verses coming that he comes and he's joined by a large crowd. So most likely this crowd stayed there. Now I'm sure that there's some that, that went to Bethany who wanted to see Jesus, got a, wanted to see this, this uh, raised dead man, Lazarus, and they wanted to take part in it. And I'm sure that they had their lodging in Jerusalem. They had family maybe that they were staying with. So I'm sure a lot of them came down. And I believe that... Uh, this is probably why the, the large crowd in Jerusalem knew that Jesus was coming. They may have confirmed from his disciples that, okay, he is going to be at the feast. They come back to Jerusalem saying, yes, he is coming. Because we hear in the, in the next verse that, or in, in verse 12, that they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Because the big question was, the religious leaders want to kill him. He's, he's stirring up trouble. Is he really going to make an appearance at this large festival? Is he really going to show up? And he's been laying low for about two months or so. They get the news that, yes, indeed, Jesus is coming. What I can tell you is that this group of Jews had come for the festivities, but not necessarily for Jesus. That was an added bonus. And it's so funny because they come to the Passover feast and celebration, which is what? A celebration of when the Passover happened in the time of Exodus, when the blood of the Lamb was put on to the door where the angel of the Lord passed by. The Lamb that was slain, the blood that was put on the door, was a foreshadowing of Christ. And here's this big, great group that come for the festivities, come for the celebration, but don't necessarily, not necessarily there to see Jesus. And what we notice, and what we'll see next week, is, is a contrast between them and a Gentile group that is there specifically to talk and speak with Jesus. Jesus. 
How true this is of today's society, though. How often are these seats filled and people filing through the doors on those Easter Sundays? How it is common practice that you go to church on Easter. You go to church in the Christmas season. They come to take part of a tradition maybe that they and their family has started or that just America alone does. But they have no intentions of actually meeting with the one in whom the celebration is about. This will become more, even more evident with this crowd when they are compared, like I said, to the Gentile crowd. But as Jesus travels from Bethany toward Jerusalem, they get word of his coming. Now, what I said before is that Bethany was about two miles away, and they come down toward Jerusalem. Often you'll hear of Texas saying going up to Jerusalem, and that's kind of a, a spiritual metaphor. You're always going up to the Lord, going up to the temple, going up to Jerusalem, going up to Zion, even though it was lower. So they come from Bethany, and they're coming over the, the Mount of Olives, and, and there they, he sees, Jesus sees Jerusalem, and, and there's no doubt, as we've seen throughout the gospel, throughout all the gospels, that wherever Jesus went by this time had probably a fairly large crowd with them. So it was, it was no doubt that the people in Jerusalem would look up on the mountain, and they would see a large crowd coming. And they had to say, this has got to be the crowd. This has got to be our Lord. This has got to be the king. Because the rumors were spreading that this was indeed the Messiah. This was the king that they had been long awaiting for. What excitement must have been boiling within them. Verse 17 reveals to us that this crowd had heard of the rising of Lazarus from those that were present. And the whispers that were going around about this must be their Messiah that hadn't been long awaited for. Imagine a crowd. Now, like I said, there was millions in, in Jerusalem, um, and there had to be thousands and thousands of people boiling over with excitement, wanting to, to reach Jesus. Verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. What a great disappointment for the religious leaders at this time. This whole time, Jesus is making trouble for them. This whole time, he is stirring up trouble for them. He is calling them out. He is condemning them. And then he does the raising of Lazarus, with, which causes a whole new heap of trouble for them. And they say, we've got to kill him, and then he's laying low for about a month to two months. And the Jews, the religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees say, all right, well, at least we've got a break from Jesus. We get through the Passover, and then we'll work it out, and we'll deal with this whole Lazarus thing. But at least Jesus is laying low. I think we scared him. What's this crowd going out to go do? What are they saying? Jesus' time of laying low and being quiet is over. And he comes not just coming into town, but comes in a triumphal 
entry, as this text is called. And as I said, there are thousands, thousands, they probably went from uh, the city gates all the way to the Mount of Olives almost. You probably a good mile stretch of these thousands of people waving their palm branches. Um, as I said, scholars estimate there were millions of people that were in the city at the Passover feast, but there had to be, at, at the very minimum, at least 3,000 people praising Jesus, but most likely more than that. There are other accounts of the events tells us that they lay down their cloaks and palm branches, which is a common way to pay homage to a king at this time. Even now, today, if someone throws down their, their garments and lets someone step over, it's a way to show respect and honor. Um, the palm branches that we see here was a national symbol, which symbolized deliverance and salvation and their shouts and praises match this. Hosanna, which translates in Hebrew, save now or save please. This is a reference taken from Psalm 118, 25-26, which is known as uh, the Hallels, the singing psalms. And that psalm particularly is called the conquering psalm. If you would, actually, let's, let's go ahead and turn there. Psalm 118. If you just open your Bible up in the middle, you're most likely to hit it. At least a book. Psalm 118. And the text is um, verses 25 and 26 of Psalm 118. And this is from which they are referencing the conquering psalm. Save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is the reference in which they are singing their songs of praises to Jesus as he approaches them. As they wave their palm branches and throw their garments down on the ground before him. But what is funny and interesting about this psalm is the verses right before it. If you look with me on verses 19 through 24 of Psalm 118, it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteousness shall enter through it. I thank you that you, you answered me and you have become my salvation. And here's the interesting verse. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So, it's very interesting that the psalm that they use in hailing him as a king finds its context as the stone that is to be rejected. They're singing praises to him and hailing me as king from a psalm that ultimately speaks of his rejection. But it is, of course, because of this rejection that he has now become the foundation of the true temple, who is Christ himself, that will be established. Now, whenever we watch the Hollywood renditions of the triumphal entry, what do we see? 
We see Jesus on, on the donkey, waving. He's like, he's like Santa Claus in the Macy Thanksgiving float. You know, he's waving at everyone, and everyone's waving at him, and he's smiling, and, and he's just being so honored by what's going on. And, and that's, the, that's the idea that we get. And Jesus is smiling down and saying, finally, they get it. Finally, they understand who I am and are accepting me as who I am, their king. But if we read the other gospel accounts, we notice that there is a, uh, there's a different demeanor that Jesus has. And a careful study reveals that in Luke 19, 41 through 44, tells us that Jesus approached the city and he wept. Not seen in Hollywood renditions of this. Jesus is approaching the city. He sees the city from the brow of, of the Mount of Olives. He looks down, sees the large crowd, sees the large crowd coming at him. And as the text has told us before, I believe in John 12, or I'm sorry, John 2, um, Jesus knows their hearts and he weeps. Why does he weep? Because he knows the fickleness of their faith. He knows the motive behind their praises and hosannas. Jesus knows the changed attitude within five days span. Jesus knows the outcome will be their rejection and unbelief. And Jesus also, as Luke tells us, says the result of their unbelief will be the destruction of Jerusalem itself almost 40 years after this time. When the Roman uh, commander Titus comes in and and lays siege and, and obliterates Jerusalem, destroys the temple, kills millions of the Jews You can reread about that in Luke 19, 41 through 44. He knows the true motivation behind their hosannas. Because you see, what the Jews were wanting was a physical king. What they were wanting was a physical conqueror. What they wanted was a savior who was going to save them from the Romans. Completely temporal. Completely a physical, political leader that would overthrow the Roman government. And this was the idea of the Messiah when he would come. He would come as, as a seed, the seed of David. And who was David? David was a conquering king who was used mightily by God. Who conquered nations and brought about Israel's greatest dynasty time. And they thought when the Messiah come, he will surely slay all of our enemies. He will exalt Israel. They want an earthly king that would bring about their hopes and their desires, which was, like I said, no longer to be under the oppression of Rome. And surely this Jesus was that person. 
If he could restore life to the dead, surely taking life from the Romans would be easy as pie. He feeds 5,000 with, with, actually it's more than that, but the text says it's 5,000, and, and uh, because they only counted men. But he feeds 5,000, which is five loaves and two fish. He heals and restores the sight to the blind, restores health, restores um, the ability to walk to the lame, restores life to the dead. Surely he can use this power to get what we want him to get for us, which is our exaltation, the destruction of our enemies. This was their guy, their king, who would lead a revolt against Rome and grant them their independence finally and bring about the kingdom of God. But what is so interesting it's how the very next verse should have dissuaded them from this mindset. Verse 14, And Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is a prophecy fulfilled by Zechariah. Chapter 9, verse 9. I'll read it. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout out aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey? Just to give you a little context of of Zechariah, in in 538 B.C., uh, the Persian king Cyrus has granted the Jews to re-enter Jerusalem, to, to go back to Judah. And, and rebuild and reconstruct the temple and start their lives over again. What had happened before this was that 70 years prior to this, the Babylonians, as it was predicted, because of their idolatry and sin and unrepentance, comes in and, and wipes out and takes captive Israel. And so when, the, when Israel returns to their land, what do they find? Nothing but ash rubble, and ruins. And you can imagine their discouragement, but on top of that, the first eight verses of chapter 9 tells us that they were surrounded by many enemies who did not wish for them to, to see, see them rebuild, to get reestablished as, as a nation. So being highly discouraged and hopeless, the Lord sends the prophet Zechariah, who was a contemporary of the prophet Haggai at the time, Whose, only, whose main ministry and purpose was to encourage the people to rebuild and reconstruct the temple. Zechariah tells the people that God was not absent from them, that he would ensure the establishment of the temple and the city. And then the first eight verses of chapter 9 talks about how the judgment of God would come to the surrounding enemy nations. And that is fulfilled almost 200 years later by the conquest conquest of Alexander the Great. Then to top it off, Zechariah tells the people that their king is coming, who will establish an everlasting peace, verse 10. So we must understand that the context of Zechariah 9.9 is, is written and has with it a conquering theme. And the Messiah was to be a conquering king like David. 
So we can somewhat understand why these Jewish people, this great crowd, was hailing him and thought, okay, this is the time he's going to establish his earthly kingdom. If you read the Minor Prophets, you will read of the restoration of Israel. You will read of, of God slaying the enemies. You will read, actually, after verse 9 of Zechariah, how, how there will be peace that, that the Lord will bring about. That they will be able to, to put down their bows, put down their, their weapons. Why? Because there will be no more war, because there will be no more enemies of God and his people. So you can see how the context, they would see that this is the time. This is the big revolt. But the one thing that should have made them think differently is this donkey. From reading the other gospel accounts, we know that Jesus had ordered that his disciples go into the approaching village and take a donkey and are colt or young. And when they were asked to, uh, what they were doing, they simply would say that the Lord has need of them, and most likely the people who owned them maybe were followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, and said, go, take them. <clears throat> and they bring them to Jesus. And it was vital that Jesus ride the colt because it had never been ridden before. And Jesus was about to fulfill a role that has never been fulfilled or will ever be fulfilled by anyone else. Matthew tells us that the mother of the colt was brought along as well. Um, as we know from this text, the disciples didn't know really what was going on. They were oblivious to the prophecies at this time. So they probably brought the uh, mother along because an uh, unridden colt separated by their mother would be rather uncooperative. But the real reason as to why the mother and colt was to be brought to make this a distinct that this was a prophecy being fulfilled by Zechariah, or by Jesus from the book of Zechariah. Now, what is interesting is that, I don't know about you, but for the longest time, I would read this text and say, okay, Jesus comes in to the city on a donkey, which is most, most likely to be like, you know, the lowest, low, lowest, forms of transportation, maybe. So it just kind of highlights his humility, and that's it. And while that is true, at this time, um, donkeys were not as highly esteemed to ride as, say, horses. But we read in the Old Testament that donkeys were used by royalty. First uh, Kings 133, Solomon rides on a mule to be anointed as king, which is somewhat of a foreshadow of our text here. Since the days of Solomon, though, this kind of changes. With Solomon's great wealth, he, he, he uh, acquits for himself a massive um, army of chariots and horses. And what he does is now change that kings and royalty should ride on horses. Now, as I said, a donkey was not uncommon to ride at this time, or especially in the Old Testament. But by the time Solomon had come, a conquering king would not ride a donkey. A conquering king who was about to wage war would ride a steed, would ride a horse. Now it was common. And if the Romans were to look out, and if they were Roman officials there or, or guards, and they say, look, they, they're, they're starting a revolt. They got this guy, they're calling Jesus their king. And he's going to lead a revolt. And the Roman soldiers looked out and saw they would say, the guy on the donkey? Yeah. We're okay. 
It was humility, but also the, the horse became a symbol of war, a weapon of war, whereas the donkey became known as to be uh, a symbol of peace. It was not uncommon for, for a king or someone of royalty to ride into a city in the Old Testament on a donkey. But if they were going to war, then the horse, the horse is what would be chosen to ride. <clears throat> so, you can understand, you see, even in the Old Testament, in Zechariah's time, when they were hearing about all these enemies of God, and how God would bring about judgment on all of them, and Zechariah says, and behold, Zion, behold, Israel, your king is coming, humbled and on a on, uh, mounted on a donkey, even at the old, in this time, they had to be scratching their heads at this. We're a donkey? So here Jesus comes, riding in on a donkey, not a horse, no chariots, no swords or shields are clanging, This was, of course, God's way of revealing to us how this king would conquer. It would not be through military means. It was not to be by physical means, but spiritual. It would not be through, through attacking and military means, but humility and peace. Not by a crown of gold, but by a crown of thorns. Not by a sword, but by a cross. Not through the bloodshed of many, but through the bloodshed of one. His kingdom is spiritual, not physical. Just as he told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, John 18, 36. So separated this king is from the world and the ways of it. Our Lord here leaves for us a great example for us to follow. For his ministry, kingdom, and his life itself is marked by humility and self-denial, denial, even to the point when he's very uh, born. This king had no place to lay his head, Luke 9, 58. This king receives not glory for man, John 5, 41. This king came to serve, not be served, Matthew 20, 28. This king carries with him no riches or even possessions. Even the donkey that he rides into town is borrowed. This king is the antithesis of a worldly king. And as his followers, we too must live a life that is antithesis to this world. For the kingdom we belong to is not of it. Now, I'm not saying you go sell your possessions. But the one thing that consumed our Lord more than anything was the kingdom of God. And how often are we consumed by the worries, the cares and the things of this world, this life, right here, right now, just as this crowd is. Jesus had told them plenty of times that his kingdom was spiritual. They had known this. Yet, they say, okay, you're here to take care of our physical needs, right? You're here to liberate us from the Romans. You're here to give us another meal. 
They were not kingdom-minded. And I am disgusted at times at how little kingdom-minded I am. How often the cares and worries of this world overtake me. How much of my time I spend thinking of the things of this world. Setting my mind on the things below instead of the things that are above. Colossians 3. Now one thing we must take notice of is our Lord's acceptance of this praise and adoration. This is not the first time that the crowd, a great large crowd, has desired to to take him and anoint him as king. And in Luke's account of this event, we read that the Pharisees approached Jesus and said, and rebuked the people for making this great proclamation. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones, the very stones would cry out. Luke 19.40. We have seen that Jesus denies the people from taking him and proclaiming him as their king earlier in chapter 6. Jesus feeds 5,000, actually more than that, feeds thousands and thousands of people with five loaves, two fish. They say, wow, look at this guy. He can do a great miracle. Think what he can do for us politically. Think what he can do for us um, against the Romans. Let's, let's make him, let's anoint him as king. And Jesus, knowing this, says he's, he, he slips away from them. He withdraws. So the question comes, why does he now accept this coronation? Even though he knows the crowd's heart, he knows the true motives. As we said, he weeps over the city because he knows what's about to happen. He knows that their hearts are really filled with unbelief and self-centeredness. The answer simply is because it was now his time to bring about the kingdom. This text that we're in today is what Phil likes to call this springboard that launches the whole reason Christ came. The Passion Week. He is hailed as king here, but will be crucified five days later. He accepts their praise because he is about to bring in the kingdom. This is by the means by which Jesus brings about the kingdom of God. He knows that his time has now come For it is this reason that he is coming to the world, John 18, 37. Jesus earlier denies the coronation by the people because it is not to be made by king because of miracles. They see the great miracles, they want to make him king. He says, no. It is not by the healing of blind that I'm going to bring about the kingdom. It is not by the feeding of thousands of people that I'm going to bring about the kingdom. It is not even by raising a dead man that I'm going to bring about the kingdom. It is not the the restoration of life, but the loss of his own in which he will bring about the kingdom. He is now ringing in his kingdom, not by miracles, but by the cross. This is why he accepts their praise, no matter how self-centered and fickle it may, it may be, because he is on his way to usher in the kingdom. And it is no coincidence that the sign labeling Jesus was prominently placed 
the sign labeling Jesus as king was prominently placed where? On the cross. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Oh, the poor disciples. Those closest to Jesus seem to be the most oblivious to what he's doing. <clears throat> they had no idea that this, what was going on was being a fulfilled prophecy. They most likely had the same mindset as the crowd, to be honest with you. We read in, in Acts 1-6, after the resurrection and before Jesus' ascension, they ask, is, are you now going to usher in your kingdom? Are you now going to bring in your physical kingdom? What they were asking for was the physical overthrowing kingdom of Jesus that was not for them to know at that day or an hour. So they still had this mindset. They still had the, the physical, the here and the now mindset. It was only after when the Holy Spirit comes to them at Pentecost that things click. Just as Jesus said it would in, in uh, Matthew, or no, actually John 14, 26. And man, what I would have given to see the disciples when that light bulb came on. At Pentecost, Holy Spirit comes, and all of a sudden, everything that Jesus spoke on, everything that he taught them, everything that he did was brought to memory and was automatically connected with the Old Testament scriptures and prophecies. What that must have been like to get that all at once. Get the Holy Spirit, light bulb comes on. Oh. Oh. What a light bulb. And if I was a disciple, I would be having a little checklist with me. You know? Okay, did, did fulfill that one. All right. But they seem to, to miss out on this. They most likely was probably baffled at the fact that he was riding on a colt, on a donkey's colt. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear and continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him, or this was the reason why the crowd went out to meet him, was because they heard that he had done this sign. Again, we see the motive behind this great crowd is self-centered and motivated by their own personal greed. As I've already said, this crowd sees this, this great miracle that Jesus performed as a weapon to be used for their personal gain against the Romans. Now, I do not doubt at all that there were those who, that just wanted to have an experience. This is the guy who raised Lazarus? Yeah. Let's go check it out. Let's see what he does today. Look how many people are in Jerusalem. I bet you he feeds everybody. I heard they can do it. I heard he turned water into wine. Let's go, let's go see what he's doing. This is a reoccurring theme in the Gospel of John. John 2, 23, 25, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and it needed no one to bear witness about him, for he himself knew what was in man. John 6, 2, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. John 6, 26, Jesus rebukes those at the wedding, um, I'm sorry, the feeding of 5,000. And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you that you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. There are many churches that are not only filled, but are built upon people seeking this experience. They are looking for their miracle, their blessing. 
I remember at our old building, there was a church right down the road, and outside they had their sign, um, and they had the little, you know, you could put up words and stuff and make your own little comment on it, and on it says, have you had a personal experience with Jesus? Now, I don't know the motive behind it or what they're really trying to convey, but it seems that a lot of churches are boiling down Jesus and the gospel to being an experience, something that you can experience. Have you spoken in tongues? Have you been slain by the Spirit? What kind of miraculous thing has happened? How do you know you're saved if you haven't had one of these crazy experiences? There are many churches that focus on the miracle and blessing aspect of Jesus rather than Jesus himself. This was this crowd. They wanted to see him be a part of the show. They wanted to... They wanted free food. They wanted healing. They wanted independence from Rome. They seemed to want everything but Jesus himself. How do we know this? Because when Jesus does none of these things from them, the demeanor of this crowd changes dramatically within five days' time. We all know these people today. They are the ones that start to come to church They seem that they're really involved. They seem to be really into it, genuinely, legitimately into it. And then out of nowhere, they don't show up. Sunday after Sunday, they don't show up. And then one day, you see on their Facebook something they post, you're like, the heck, I thought she was a Christian. What is she doing? What is he doing? He just posted this thing? The heck. Being a youth ministry and being part of a a youth ministry at a bigger church, sometimes it's hard. Probably one of the hardest parts. I tell the youth all the time, I said, one of my biggest, biggest fears is running into you guys 20 years from now and seeing that Christ has no part of your life. That it was something that you were a part of. That it was something that you went to experience. But you did not desire to see Jesus at all. Your heart was never truly into it. These are the people who come to church and and disappear. And when you ask them, where have you been? They say, you know, I started going to church, you know, because of, uh, you know, I was lonely. I was looking for a godly guy or a godly girl and, and, uh, you know, to be a part of. So I started going to church and I was really into it. But you know what? God never brought that about. Or worse yet, he did bring it about and I still got hurt and, You know, so I just left. I started going to church because my marriage was failing. And I really got involved, man. I got plugged into ministries. I was doing the studies with the men's group. But when my marriage still failed, I realized this wasn't for me. I started going to church because my beloved one was sick and ailing in their health. And when they died anyways, I decided... This isn't for me. This is this crowd. They come to Jesus with ulterior motives. When we boil the gospel down to nothing more than blessings, miracles, and experiences to be had, you create for yourself churches full of people that are identical to this crowd. Seeking the things of Jesus, but not Jesus himself. 
That's why the word of faith and prosperity gospel is such garbage. Not only is, not the op- not only is it the opposite of what Christ taught and how he lived, but when the miracles and blessings don't come, neither will the people. Fickle teaching produces fickle followers. When things do not go the way you want and you walk away from God, you show yourself to be no better than a self-centered, self-seeking crowd. Now we see the, another group being introduced again. Verse 19, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The Pharisees had no intentions of killing Jesus during the Passover. None at all. Too many witnesses. Too big of a crowd. Too much potential opposition. We're going to wait till the dust settled. But as I already said before, Jesus' time had come. Jesus must be sacrificed, must be killed as a sacrificial lamb on Passover. You know, when you, when you read through the Old Testament, um, I had the blessing in this last year to go through Old Testament studies class and, and reading through the whole Old Testament and one thing I walked away from, mind-boggled more than anything. And we all admit there's the sovereignty of God. But man, when you read through the, the Old Testament and you start connecting things, and you really, I became overwhelmed with the sovereignty of God. The little things he sets in place, he will raise up nations to accomplish one thing here and then bring it to its fall. He rose up a pagan uh, leader in Alexander the Great, to accomplish his purpose. He brought about the Romans' success and, king, and empire because Jesus was to be nailed to a cross, and that was their preferred method of execution because cursed are those who die on a tree. God's sovereignty is amazing. And so, though the Pharisees had no plan to kill Jesus during this time, they see this great crowd going out, and they realize now is the time. They must act now. With the miracle of Lazarus, they're hailing him as king, and even more people are in the city. He's going to have even more followers. It's going to become even harder for us after the Passover. Look how many people are out there, thousands and thousands. We have to do something. We have to act now. It's funny that just as God uses uh, a pagan, unbelieving uh, Alexander the Great to accomplish his purpose, so does he use an unbelieving religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, to accomplish the purpose. The time was now. This, of course is all unfolding in the Father's timing, which Jesus knows. Now, going back to Zechariah's prophecy, he says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. The crowd misses their king. They hail him as king, 
But just as Jesus says, though they, their lips praise me and their hearts are far from me. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. But regardless of this crowd, regardless of their hearts, regardless of their motivation, the king still came. And he has brought to us who believe in him a great salvation. As I stated um, in, in the book of Zechariah, Old Testament, Old Testament prophecies kind of had a... Uh, the problem is that they were written down as God reveals them. And for us, we see things in a chronological order. That's not usually how God sees things. He's outside of time. So what we see, um, as in the prophet Zechariah, we see a prophecy being given to the people, which has had a present day application, a future application, an application and fulfillment that happens here, and one that is to happen thousands of years from this. But God, what God would do so often in Old Testament prophecies is that he would, he would grant a small fulfillment of that prophecy so that the people could look back and say, God was faithful in filling this part of the prophecy, so he will fulfill this latter part of the prophecy. You think of, think of Abraham. God says to Abraham, I know that you have no child, but I will make a great nation out of you. Now, Abraham never sees physically that, that come about, the great nation, but he does, he does have a son. The uh, prophecies Zechariah gives, the enemies of God were, or the enemy nations of Israel was destroyed by, by Alexander the Great, and that part was fulfilled. And here we have a, a fulfillment of the king coming, but there's a latter part of that prophecy that he would bring about a he will bring about a physical kingdom that he will put an end to the enemies of God Matthew 24:30-31 says at that time the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. And just as Christ came and fulfilled the prophecy that we, are, that we have read today, so he will fulfill this prophecy as well. He did usher in his kingdom. He did slay the enemy. He fulfilled the prophecy in Genesis 3. He did crush the serpent's head on the cross. This is our hope. Just as Israel, when they heard the words of Zechariah, continued and endured through the persecution of their time because they knew of the future glory that was to come, that their king was coming, so we too can find this hope knowing that our Lord will reappear. No, what, no matter what happens in our life, we can find encouragement that he is still on his throne. No matter what life throws at you, no matter how much your life seems to be unraveling, the king is still coming. When the world becomes dark and corrupt, the king 
is still coming. When it seems as though all hope is lost, your king is still coming. When your candidate doesn't get elected, your king is still coming. He is still on his throne. And the king who is coming, as Zachariah says, he is coming to you righteous in salvation. That word righteous there means just or justice, injustice. When, when Zechariah says he's coming righteous and with salvation, that means there's a twofold, a two side of this coin of his coming. Just as Jesus comes and weeps over the city, he pronounces a judgment on the people. Because while he does bring salvation to some, his righteous judgment he will bring as well. So to anyone that may be here, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you're ready or not, the king is coming. At his first advent, at his first coming, the people were expecting a lion and instead got a lamb. At his second coming, people are expecting a lamb, but they will get a lion. Which leads me to my last point, and we will close. As I was doing the study and reading up on the text, there is always a contrast made between the group one, the praising, hailing crowd, and group two, the hateful religious leaders. But both groups are pretty identical, to be honest. You see, the religious leaders hated Jesus because he didn't fit the mold in which they had thought he should fit. When the Messiah's come, he's going to be a, a political military leader. He's going to exalt us. He's not going to condemn us like this guy. He's not going to be poor like this guy. This guy's not fitting our mold. Therefore, we hate him. The great crowd is praising Jesus because of why? Because up in, because at this point, he is fitting their mold. This guy can do miracles. He's come. He's going to overthrow Rome. He has come in power, able to do these great things. He'll take care of our physical needs, as well as grant for us our independence. But the moment they see him in chains, the moment they see him humbled, beaten, he's no longer fitting that mold of theirs. And their hosannas and praises of the king quickly turns to shouts of crucify him. We must be careful that the Jesus we are worshiping is the same Jesus that is reflected in Scripture. Because I think that if some of us were truly, would truly examine ourselves, I think a lot of, in a lot of churches, if people would truly examine themselves, 
think they will find that they are more devoted to their idea of Jesus rather than Jesus himself.